sermon text is 1 Samuel 3, 1 through, and I'm going to read to 21, so it's a little different, but look at page 264 in the Sanctuary Bible, if you have one in front of you, 264. And uh, again, we're going to do seven sermons on 1 and 2 Samuel and kind of trace this beautiful and tragic and difficult and redemptive arc of Israel's history in this time period from about 1050 B.C. to a little after 1000 B.C. So, uh, and, and it covers the lifespan of Samuel and Saul and David, and it's, it's really instructive, it's really interesting. So this is the first we begin today. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 3. And uh, just a few words about Samuel. I want to just give you some background. One is that he was a miraculous baby. If you remember that story from the first chapter, his mother was unable to conceive. So this is one of those stories in the scriptures, and there are several, of infertility and what a toll that that takes on a family. And she was incredibly distressed and, and depressed over this, and she prayed fervently for a child, and she even made a deal with God that if she had a child, she would dedicate it to the Lord. And so she came to the tabernacle at Shiloh where the prophet Eli, uh, the priest, uh, priest and prophet Eli was in charge and he thought she was drunk because she was praying so fervently. And he accused her of drunkenness but she said, no, I'm praying for a child. And uh, he sent her away and said, come back next year. And she came back with the child and she gave this child to Eli to care for it, to be raised in the tabernacle before the temple was built, and that was Samuel. So that's where our story picks up. But there's another aspect of that which we need background on, which is that Eli had children of his own. They were named Phineas and Hophni, and they were trouble kids. They were bad kids. They normally don't say bad kids, you know, but these were bad kids, you know. Uh, it's funny, when Asher got in trouble at preschool, his preschool teacher was really nice. She said, Asher, you're a good boy. You're not a bad boy. You're a good boy, because you don't want to shame children by calling them bad kids, you know. Uh, but you made some bad choices, right? So that's, that's the difference. So Eli's sons made some bad choices. They might have been bad kids, too. I'll leave that to you to decide. But they were abusing their position at the, um, at the tabernacle. You can read up on that yourself in chapter 2 of 1 uh, Samuel but the big problem with that was that Eli knew what they were doing, and he did not confront his own sons. He did not correct. He was in charge of them, and he didn't correct their own behavior. And often we see in the scriptures that the sins of the father are visited upon the children to the second and the third generations, which sounds awful, right? Although, if you remember, that really keeps going because of original sin. But every now and then, the sins of the children are visited upon the fathers, and that's what happens here. We're going to see that, which is an interesting reversal. But yet, God thought that Eli needed to do a better job of reigning in his sons, and he did not do so. That's going to come up in our reading this morning. Also, it's an unusual time for God's people. They're not really a nation yet. They're not really a nation. They're a bunch of tribes that have occupied different parts of the land, right? They have one spiritual center, which is where the tabernacle and the ark is, and that's at a place called Shiloh. Not too far from modern Jerusalem, but not in Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was occupied, not occupied, it was owned by somebody else, a tribe called the Jebusites. These were not God's people. They owned that city. It was only David who finally took it from them in about 1000 B.C. So Israel didn't really have a capital. It, didn't really have, it definitely didn't have a king. 
It didn't have an organized central structure. It had judges that would sometimes pass judgment. It had a priest and a prophet in Eli, and it had a tabernacle, and it had the Ark of the Covenant as sort of, but it was not a nation like other nations around Israel, and it was not an empire. At this time in the history of the Middle East, empires were flourishing. Very organized, systematic societies were being built in Assyria and in Egypt, but not in this part of the world. It was just a little more rough, a little more rough and tumble. And so Israel was not yet a country. And so the other thing that makes it interesting, an interesting and, and challenging time, is that it says in, our, in the beginning of our reading that the words of God were rare at this time. God was not providing a lot of guidance to his people. And they actually didn't have a lot of scripture to work with either. Think about where they are in terms of the timeline. They didn't have the history books because history was being written. They didn't have the Psalms, except for maybe one or two of them. They didn't have the Proverbs. Most of those were written by Solomon, but a few others maybe. They, you know, they, ha they had the first five books of the Bible as an oral tradition. They might not have had much of a written language to write this all down with. They just had these traditions. And so they had the Ten Commandments, they had the Ark of the Covenant, and at this time, although this changes, the word of the Lord was rare. It was seldomly heard. So all that kind of sets the stage for our reading now. And let's go to our reading. It's in 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 20, and it goes like this. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came, now notice this, verse 10. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible, and he failed to restrain them. 
Therefore I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you? Eli asked. Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So two things I want to bring up, one after the other, two things. And the first one is that Samuel is, is a, it's, he's an interesting person in the Bible. He's unlike anyone else in the Bible. We're going to find out a little bit more as we go on, but um, he's really like God's answer to the times. And I want you to, do, to imagine this, okay? Have, does anyone like Western movies? They've had a bit of a renaissance lately. They're really great. I grew up with them. Oh, I loved them, you know? And, and there have been some really good Westerns come out lately. Uh, anyway, like Clint Eastwood, I think he started that renaissance when he came out with a movie called Unforgiven. It was great. Okay, kids don't watch it. But it's good. It's good. I mean, there's some really interesting storylines in there. So I want you to imagine that there's an old western town, and there's kind of a corrupt sheriff in the town, and the people in the town kind of get away with whatever they want, and the sheriff doesn't really do anything about it. Is this easy to imagine? This is like the plot of one western movie at least, right? And then imagine that the governor gets word of this sheriff who's not really doing his job at the town, and so he sends a marshal to the town. And the marshal shows up and he says, Sheriff, you're done. There's a new sheriff in town, and that's me. And I'm going to clean up this town in the ways that you could not. All right? Sound like, this sounds like any Western movie that you've ever seen. That's what's happening here. Did you get that? That's what's happening here. Eli is not restraining his sons. They're doing some really horrible things. And so God is calling a new sheriff. The new sheriff just happens to be Samuel, who's living with Eli. And this is hard news for Eli. Eli presses Samuel about this news. Tell me what he said. And what's great about Samuel is he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. He doesn't try to find a way to soft pedal it. He tells Eli everything that the Lord said that God will not forgive Eli, at least not through an atoning sacrifice or offering, maybe some other way, and that his house has fallen. And Eli's response is actually quite good. It's a bit of a surrender, but he says, may the Lord do as he sees fit. I deserve this. I had it coming. So it's kind of like imagine in the movie, the old sheriff goes, yeah, I was wondering when you were going to show up and put me out of my job, because... I, I also agree that I cannot do it, you know. So, 
Samuel's interesting. Samuel's an important person. Um, and I want you to notice just a few. I'm not going to make, you wouldn't make too big of a deal out of it, but I want you to notice just a few details where it, Samuel seems a little bit like Jesus, okay? Listen, entertain, entertain me here, okay? Uh, or I'll entertain you. Either way, works. Uh, they both had a miraculous birth, you know? Samuel kind of came out of nowhere. His mother couldn't have children, but then God granted. Now, Jesus' birth was different, but also miraculous. Jesus' parents brought him to the temple when he was young, and he received these blessings, you know, from, from various strangers come and bless him. Then they bring him again, and, and he actually stays there, right? He stays and he says, I have to be in my father's house. The other thing that's interesting about Samuel is he doesn't make a lot of mistakes, Okay? This is interesting. People make, all the people in the Bible make except, mistakes except for Jesus, right? Have you noticed that? Everybody does something wrong. It's kind of hard to find Samuel making any really big mistakes. He has some regrets, but I don't see him making a lot of mistakes. He's not, but he's not superhuman either. It's just we don't hear about his mistakes that much, okay? Um, and he comes for a specific purpose, which is to bring God's people into a new relationship with God and a new structure for their life together. And he's instrumental in God paving the way for the tabernacle to move from Shiloh to Jerusalem, where it then becomes the temple when Solomon finally builds it. And this is huge in the life of Israel. And it's actually huge for Jesus, that the temple had to be there, and it had to symbolize all the things that it symbolized, and it had to have the rituals that it had so that Jesus could then come and complete them in himself. So Samuel is a very important person because he calls King Saul. He eventually then calls King David, as you know, this beautiful story where he lines up the children, the sons of Jesse, and says, where's, <laughs> I don't see any kings here. Where's the last one? And, and I think Victoria's going to preach on that one, where they say, well, we have one little brother, but he's, I'm the youngest, so I totally identify. He's nothing. He's just out there with the sheep. He's not worth being here with us adults. And Samuel says, we will not rest until you bring him here and I make him king of Israel by anointing him. Praise God. This is Samuel. Samuel paves the way for David. David paves the way, obviously, for Solomon. Solomon, David could not build the temple of the Lord because he had too much blood on his hands. Solomon had to build it. So God's work is all throughout this time, and we're going to be seeing it. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing is a little bit bigger, and I want you to pay attention to this. Did you notice a really funny word, and it's in the title of the sermon, so you could kind of crib from your, from your bulletin. Is there one funny word? Kind of a funny word? Kind of a silly word? Tingle. Did you see that? That will cause the ears of all who hear it to tingle. And, you know, could this be a good thing? Survey says, anyone? Maybe tingle? It sounds like it could be good, like, oh, you know, like, my kids sometimes tickle my ears. This is not that. This is a bad tingle, okay? This is a bad tingle. I'm going to read to you partly because of what comes after it. I'm going to, I'm going to cause the ears of all who hear it to tingle. I'm going to judge Eli and his family in a way that hasn't been seen before. Listen to other places 
where this exact phrase is used. 2 Kings, you don't have to write this down unless you want to. 2 Kings 21, 10 through 13. The word here for tingle is a Hebrew word, and it, it points to a sense of surprise, but also foreboding or dread, like not a good tingle. This is what 2 Kings 21.10 says. The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, this is one way further down the line of kings, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Tell us how you really feel, God. Man, how do you like that imagery? I'm going to wipe Jerusalem like you're wiping a dish, and then I'm going to turn it upside down. The ears of everyone who hears this will tingle because of Manasseh's idolatry, King Manasseh's idolatry. Jeremiah 19, 3. Hear the words of the Lord, O kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the heirs of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this place, this a place of foreign gods, they have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. You know, there's a whole other thing here, and it just gets worse. I'm not going to read it to you. You can look it up yourself, Jeremiah 19. God is mad at Manasseh. God is mad at Jerusalem. God is mad at Eli and when he's mad, he says, I'm going to do something so that when people hear about it, their ears are going to tingle. I'm going to bring judgment on the land. And Samuel is the messenger of that judgment. So it's not like Samuel got the nice job. You know, he could have been the kid at the temple that just lights the candles. I used to do that when I was a kid. I was the acolyte in the Lutheran church. It was great. I had even had a robe, and I got to play with matches. It's the best job out of, of all. And I, all I had to do was sit up there and look pious, you know, which was hard for me because I'm not. No, I'm kidding. At, at least then I wasn't. No, who knows? It's a different subject. So I'd go up there, and I'd light the candles. That was an easy job. But Samuel's job, the very first day, and he's a child, the very first day, when Eli says, tell me what God said, he doesn't back down. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Well, sorry, Eli, your house is condemned. And it's not going to be forgiven by sacrifice or by offering. It's, it doesn't look good for you. And Samuel has a hard job all this time. Have you noticed? If you, well, we'll see it. But when he deals with Saul, oh, man, does he get upset with Saul. Because Saul makes a lot of bad moves. And he has to come up to Saul from time to time and say, what are you doing? What is this sound of cattle that I hear in my ears? Saul was supposed to wipe out all the cattle from a tribe that he destroyed. But Saul thought better of it. And he said, I'll, I'll keep those cows because cows are valuable, you know. And, and, Saul, and Samuel comes up to Saul and says, 
I hear cows. What's going on? You've failed the Lord again. I mentioned it in Bible study this day. Yet he loved Saul. He was engaged with Saul. And so the Lord, it says, the Lord regretted or even repented from making Saul king of Israel and replacing him with David. And Samuel lost a whole night's sleep in anguish because he loved Saul. And he had been part of that whole process of making Saul king, and it didn't work out. So Samuel had a hard job. He didn't have the easy job there. Now, Eli accepts that God's judgment is good, and you just have to read the next chapter to find out that his sons, Phinehas and Hophni, they die in a war. Then the Ark of the Covenant is stolen. This is bad news. When Eli hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen, he falls out of his chair and dies. Wow. And his daughter-in-law hears the news, goes into labor, and dies in childbirth. But the child lives. And his name is Ichabod, or Ichabod, which means, alas, the glory, or that the glory of the Lord has departed. And so this child, the, the grandson of Eli, all that's left of this family, his name is the glory of the Lord has departed. This family really gets it in the end. Now, I'll stop there for a little bit because you're kind of, you know, this is heavy stuff. Have you noticed? Like, God is mad. He's not pulling any punches. Neither is Samuel. Why all this negativity? I mean, you <laughs> Well, because there was a real problem, for one thing. But what redemptiveness is there in this, right? What is God up to? Well, he insists that those who serve him do so in a way that honor him. And Eli's sons weren't doing that, and Eli wasn't restraining his own sons, so that was a problem. But also that God needed to put a servant in place that would do what God asked him to do and say, more importantly, say what God asked him to say. And so what I came away with and what I want to share with you this morning is that I think there may be times in our lives, seasons where it seems like the word of the Lord is rare, right? Can we all relate to that somewhat? Where you just don't quite hear? But then there's other seasons in our lives where God almost stands in our presence. Remember when I said take note of verse 10? That it's almost as if in this vision or dream or if it was actuality, that God actually came to Shiloh and was standing over the bed of Samuel saying, Samuel, Samuel, you know? That was the fourth time he came, and, and Samuel was, that's when he said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That God actually manifested himself in that place and in that time. So while there may be seasons for us where God's word is rare, where we don't seem to hear from God, there are other seasons when God makes himself manifest in our lives and he speaks in a way that we really can hear. And in any given moment in this room, I could count on, I would think, at least half of the people here would have had that moment in the last few weeks, okay? At least, I think, I hope, you know, I pray. There are times when God will speak to you clearly, and here's the message. 
That's when you pay attention. That's when you say, like Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. Here I am. And this, we don't talk about this very much. This is like a very rare opportunity for me to preach about having a prophetic voice. But it may be a gift that you have, or it may be that you're in a season with God where he's asking you to use your prophetic voice. It's a voice that you develop. It's a voice that you practice sometimes. Prophetic voice is scary. It's not lighting the candles. It's something else. It's telling, sometimes it's telling people that they have failed. Not to hurt them, but to help them. And it doesn't, <laughs> did it help Eli? It's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of judgment there. But at other times, Samuel and other prophets like Nathan come around and they help God's people realize that they need to turn from their ways. And I think you may all have this gift at various times and in various seasons of the, the, the word of prophecy. A prophecy is simply speaking God's truth as you've received it to somebody else. It's you drawing on an encounter that you have had with God to pass on what God has for somebody else. And I, I never preach on this. I hardly ever preach on this. And I, I, I'm not afraid of preaching on it. It's just it's, it's a challenging topic. And there's some real cautions that I would put in the road for us here. So this is kind of advanced, but it's fine. I mean, it's great. I think we're all going to get this. But here's what, here are some tests. Ask yourself, and I've had a conversation with a few of you, and some of you are finding your prophetic voice. Praise God. You're finding something in the world that you're having a righteous, godly indignation over, and you don't know yet how to speak to it, but you're developing that voice. And God want, I think God wants that to continue. God wants you to stay engaged, and he wants you to speak. Um, it'd be very interesting if like two people here spoke the opposite things of each other. And this is a problem, right, with the prophetic voice is we need some kind of way to, to manage it in a, in a God-fearing way. So here's a few of my tests. Now, these you could write down. If you want, if you're taking notes, you could take, write uh, down. For one, one of the tests about a prophetic voice, if you have to speak to somebody else who's committing a sin or making an error, or if you have to speak to your culture which is off track and you want to call it towards God's, for one thing, the first thing is it has to have the well-being of the person you're speaking to in mind. The goal has to be the well-being of that person. It can't be spoken in revenge or to put somebody in their place. Now that's, hey, you know, I, I, there's a lot of fun things in the world like video games and uh, what are the fun, some of the fun things I like? I like going to the movies, but there's nothing so fun as putting somebody in their place. There's nothing as good as that. Am I right? or at least watching them get put in their place, that's fun. That's great fun. But you can't do that with a prophetic voice. And it's not your job to do it. So the prophetic voice is for the well-being of another person. If it feels too good to speak it, then beware. It shouldn't feel good to use your prophetic voice. It should break your heart. Because your heart is broken because a, a brother or a sister has fallen away from the Lord or because your culture or your society is broken and you love it. Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he wept for Jerusalem. The opposite of this is Jonah. Remember Jonah? He went into Nineveh. 
He proclaimed that God was going to judge it. Oh, that felt so good. It felt so good that he went out onto a hillside over the city and took up a front row seat to watch it get destroyed. Read it. That's what he was doing. And then God said, you know who really needs to learn a lesson in the book of Jonah? Not just Nineveh, but Jonah. And God spares the city. And Jonah's mad at God. Here's a prophet who's not operating as a good prophet. He was too invested in watching that place burn. He wasn't open to them and their repentance. And God had to say, should I not be concerned for that city? When there's 100,000 in it who do not know their right hand from their left, that's how you have to be as a prophet, is you care for those whom you come and prophesy to or against. And, number three, your prophetic word has to conform with Scripture. Sorry, I mean, you can't make up a new Scripture when you... Your prophetic voice has to be... It has to conform to Scripture. Enough said there. Then, finally, and I think maybe the most important, is that you have to stay connected to the people you speak it to. No drive-by prophesying, right? No. You stay connected. I have a word, but I love you. I'm not leaving your life. I'm in this with you. If it's your terrible, see ya. Jesus never did that. Jesus didn't do that. Samuel didn't do that. When God repented that he had made Saul king, Samuel lost a whole night's sleep in anguish because he loved Saul. He's a good prophet. Like I say, Samuel's an interesting person. I'm, I have a hard time finding any mistakes that he makes. I'm going to look harder, you know. But they're not, they're not readily apparent. However, now, remember my checklist? If that's all in place, then you may be entering a season where God wants to use you. And he may want to send a new sheriff into your town. You. Could be. How many of you would rather light the candles? <laughs> How many of you want to be the new sheriff? It's okay. It's okay, Zach. I see your face. It's all right. It's okay. Um, God calls pastors in this way too sometimes in regard to their congregations. And I've heard other pastors actually use this phrase, well, there's a new sheriff in town, which is a little, it's a little hard. I'll, I'll tell you one thing though. The superintendent who was in charge of the Northwest Conference, which sounds like it should be in the Pacific Northwest, but that it's not. The Northwest Conference of our denomination is Minnesota and North and South Dakota, and just this tiny little piece of Iowa where the church I served was. It's this little sliver of Iowa. And um, <clears throat> superintendent called me up, and, and the, the chairman of the church, his name, I'm going to use his real name because he would not mind. The chairman of the church was A.J. And A.J. was a farmer lawyer. He's really a great guy. A farmer lawyer. He made enough money as a lawyer so that he could afford to be a farmer. Because farmers just lose money. Farmers like... Being a farmer is like a way to lose money. And um, 
AJ was a very confident person because he was a lawyer. You know, when you're in a courtroom, this is an adversarial place. You kind of have to develop a bit of a backbone. So the superintendent calls me up and he says, how's it going there at Larchwood? Larchwood was the name of the town. The name of the church was Grandview Covenant Church. And I said, well, it's going, it's going pretty good. You know, it seems like, it seems like AJ is stepping on a few toes, you know, because that's AJ. And the superintendent, his name is Paul Erickson, he said, oh, that's good. AJ knows which toes to step on. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know. Cause he, and actually, that was true. AJ kind of had this truth detector. He could sniff it out. And he, he, he pushed, but he, didn't, he stayed in relationship with, he was like a second pastor to that church, actually, in, in a lot of ways. He was the chair of the church. And that was my first real full-time position. So I learned a lot from AJ. Praise God that a young pastor can learn from a lay person. But AJ was the new sheriff because they had just elected him, and he was trying to kind of clean it up a bit. And I had to learn from that. So praise God for that. But you may be entering a season where you need to speak a prophetic voice because you need to be faithful to God, what God is asking you to do. And your season of lighting candles might be done, and you may need to put on the spurs and the badge and get out there. He may want you to call sinners to repentance. He may want you to find a lost sheep. And if this is you, it's not everybody in this room at this moment, but if this is you and you can hear it, then what? else can we say to that except speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the witness of your servant, Samuel. Thank you for the blessing he was to Saul, the blessing he was to David, the blessing he was to us. Help us to be attentive to you, Lord, and teach us if this is the season for us to be prophetic for you. Amen.